I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. He was sure he had discovered an incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. He didn't know what to do. He tried to warn the government before things got out of hand. And Harry spent three years in space waiting to get home to Earth and his family. They were waiting for him too. That is, for his corpse. Two science fiction short stories next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Scott Miller, sci-fi fanatic and audiobook narrator. And I want to thank you for listening to the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one Lost Sci-Fi short story in every episode. We welcome your comments, thoughts, and suggestions. Send an email to scott at lostsci-fi.com. Chris Williams sent us this email recently. Hey, Scott, I love the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, but you said Planet of the Apes was your favorite sci-fi franchise by far. What about Star Wars? That's my favorite. Keep up the good work. I listen to your podcast every week. Well, thanks, Chris. I do love the Star Wars movie franchise, and you got me thinking. I think the reason I put Planet of the Apes as my all-time favorite sci-fi franchise is because it began when I was a little kid, and I'd seen all five of the Apes movies before Star Wars was released in 1977. I saw Star Wars just days after I graduated from high school in Denison, Iowa, in what is now known as the Donna Reed Theater, named after the iconic actress who was born and raised in Denison. Reed, born Donna Mullinger, starred in the 1946 Christmas classic It's a Wonderful Life alongside Jimmy Stewart, which begs the question, is It's a Wonderful Life a science fiction movie. Now, before you say no, think about it. 
George Bailey, played by Stewart, is suicidal when he's visited by an angel when George says, I wish I'd never been born. The angel grants his wish. And now the movie switches to an alternate timeline where George Bailey was never born. Sounds like sci-fi to me. What do you think? Is It's a Wonderful Life a science fiction movie? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Scott at LostSciFi.com Seven years after It's a Wonderful Life was released, a new science fiction magazine debuted in June 1953. Science Fiction Stories magazine would publish once in 1953 and once in 1954 before releasing multiple issues over the next six years. The inaugural issue was 132 pages and sold for 35 cents. I found a good to very good copy on sale for only $25, which sounds like a bargain to me, considering it contains a remarkable short story from the amazing Philip K. Dick. Turn with me to page 127. A little whimsy now and then makes for good balance. Theoretically, you could find this type of humor anywhere. But only a top-flight science fictionist, we thought, could have written this story in just this way. From Science Fiction Stories magazine in June 1953, The Eyes Have It by Philip K. Dick. It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government, and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus, when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment, I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. After I'd comprehended, it seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties, not indigenous to Earth. A species, I hasten to point out, customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious. The author knew everything. Knew everything, and was taking it in his stride. The line, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, His eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me. I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface. Rather rapidly, apparently. No one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later, the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. 
My heart pounded, and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial. Yet, to the characters in the book, it was perfectly natural, which suggested they belonged to the same species. And the author? A slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author was taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this was quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal this knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia. Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this, I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials. The narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined every inch of her. Great Scott! But here the girl turned and stomped off, and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair, gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's wrong, dear? my wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this was too much for the ordinary, run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing, I gasped. I leaped up, snatched the book, and hurried out of the room. In the garage, I continued reading. There was more. Trembling, I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently, she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so, with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. Eyes, arms, and maybe more, without batting an eyelash. My knowledge of biology came in handy at this point. Obviously, they were simple beings, unicellular, some sort of primitive single-celled things, beings no more developed than starfish. Starfish can do the same thing, you know. I read on and came to this incredible revelation, tossed off coolly by the author without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the cafe for dinner. Binary fission, obviously, splitting in half and forming two entities. Probably each lower half went to the cafe, it being farther, and the upper halves to the movies. I read on, hands shaking. I had really stumbled onto something here. My mind reeled as I made out this passage. I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney has lost his head again, which was followed by, and Bob says he has utterly no guts. Yet Bibney got around as well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as 
totally lacking in brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien life form, similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book, without heart, arms, eyes, brains, viscera, dividing up in two when the occasion demanded, without a qualm. Thereupon she gave him her hand. I sickened. The rascal now had her hand as well as her heart. I shudder to think what he's done with them by this time. He took her arm. Not content to wait, he had to start dismantling her on his own. Flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leaped to my feet, but not in time to escape one last reference to those carefree bits of anatomy whose travels had originally thrown me on the track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage and back inside the warm house, as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor, brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing. I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it. Only nine minutes long, The Eyes Have It is the shortest short sci-fi story we have narrated so far. Philip K. Dick won a few awards during his lifetime, but was recognized more as a great science fiction author after he died. He received the Hugo Award, science fiction's most prestigious award, in 1963 the man in the high castle, and in 1974, the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Flow My Tears, the policeman said. The Philip K. Dick Award is an American science fiction award given annually at NorwestCon, the Pacific Northwest premier science fiction and fantasy convention, and one of the largest entirely volunteer-operated regional conventions in the United States. Named after Philip K. Dick, it has been awarded since 1983, the year after he died. It is awarded to the best original paperback published each year in the U.S. NorwestCon 44 will be held in Seattle April 14th through the 17th. And although the event is sold out, you can attend virtually by visiting their website, norwestcon.org. Since The Eyes Have It is only nine minutes, we've added a second sci-fi short story for you today. I had originally planned on Unwelcomed Visitor by William Morrison as our second story, but when researching Morrison, I discovered a truly unique story that deserves an episode of the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast all to itself. Look for it in the next few weeks. We do have another short science fiction story for you in just a bit. The Lost Sci-Fi Podcast is growing with new listeners around the world every week. 
Welcome to our new listeners in Katy, Texas, Muskegon, Michigan, Olympia, Washington, Augusta, Georgia, Waco, Texas, Amsterdam, Egypt, and Australia. Our newest sci-fi story for only 97 cents on LostSciFi.com is Asleep in Armageddon by Ray Bradbury. You'll find Asleep in Armageddon and other vintage sci-fi stories on our website every day for only 97 cents. Go to LostSciFi.com to get your sci-fi fix for less. Now for our second story. This author used his given name a few times, and he also went by C.H. Thames, Jason Ridgway, Andrew Fraser, Adam Chase, Stephen Marlowe, Stephen Wilder, and Darius John Granger. It's entirely possible, actually probable, that he wrote short sci-fi stories and novels under pen names that we don't even know about. Born Milton Lesser on August 7th, 1928 in Brooklyn, New York. He was a science fiction author with more than 150 short stories using his given name and the previously mentioned pen names. Later in life, he wrote autobiographical fiction. If you've never heard of autobiographical fiction, you're not alone. What is it? It's based in fact, but not factual. He wrote autobiographical fiction accounts of the life of Christopher Columbus, published in 1978, titled The Memoirs of Christopher Columbus, and in 1995, published The Lighthouse at the End of the World, about Edgar Allan Poe. Lesser attended the College of William and Mary, earning a degree in philosophy. He was drafted in the U.S. Army and served during the Korean War. He legally changed his name to Stephen Marlowe in the late 1950s and about that time ditched sci-fi and created a detective character that he is perhaps best known for, Chester Drum. He wrote about 20 novels starring the Washington, D.C.-based, unmarried former policeman and FBI agent. Harry spent three years in space waiting to get home to Earth and his family. They were waiting for him, too. That is, for his corpse. From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, in April 1954, Pariah by Milton Lesser. Captain Green shook his shaggy head and studied Allerton with patient eyes. You're making a mistake, he said. You'll be back. The inside of the spaceship was quiet now, not with the silence of the tomb, but with the silence of barely inaudible echoes, as if Allerton might still be able to hear the crew clomping about the companionways on metal-shod feet, if only he knew how to listen. He buried the notion under the sweet anticipation of homecoming, and said, I don't think so, Captain. This is what I want, right here. He tapped the comforting bulk of his wallet, bulging the metallic cloth of his tunic. He was a gaunt, comical figure of a man, so long and lean that he stooped slightly at the waist and again at the shoulders, with a long, down-tipped nose which almost seemed to meet the thin-lipped mouth as he spoke. "'What about you, Captain?' he said. He was still savoring the joy of his own return, letting it build up inside him 
like a slow fire fanned by barely enough air to keep it kindled. He hardly cared whether Captain Green disembarked or not, but the captain's unexpected lack of enthusiasm was a splendid counterpoint for his own emotions, and he wanted to wring every last drop of joy from his homecoming. All the men are gone, he went on. This is Earth, Captain. I don't leave the ship much these days, Allerton. I've got to complete the log, you know, then do a little advance astronauting for the trip out. Anyway, none of the others are spacemen, Allerton. An old space dog like me can smell them a mile away, the real ones. You've got the makings, all right. You won't see me aboard the Eros again, though. I grew up in the Depression of the Eighties, Captain. What I'm looking for is security. I've got it right here, enough to start a business of my own and give my kid the kind of education he needs these days. Three years is a long time, but I tried to be a good spaceman. You were the best. Those kids running around after adventure, they'll be back. They're made for this life. They're too young and having too much fun to start thinking much about security. But now, you take me, you'll have to make the decision yourself, Captain Green admitted, leaning back comfortably with a cigar and reaching for his leather-bound log, his stubby fingers almost caressing the leaves with a love nurtured on long familiarity. We blast off in a week, he said. Enough time for you to decide, I guess. But I've already decided, sir. Allerton turned to go, stooping forward even more than usual to fit through the low doorway, which, like anything else in the tight confines of a spaceship, was not made to accommodate his gangling figure. Well, don't forget this. You're wrong about the others. They're not for space, not the way you are. It's a common misconception. Good luck, Allerton. But Allerton was already on his way down the companionway with its ghost noises, which he no longer could hear. He wondered what it really took to make a man happy, truly happy, over a sustained period. The flitting stolen moments of a spaceman's life, he knew, could never be for him. Yet outside the rain drummed down drearily on the gray apron of the landing pit, and washed over Allerton with an ineffable sadness. The reporters were waiting for him down below, huddled together under a bobbing sea of umbrellas. He failed to understand why anyone should be waiting in the rain like that. I'm from the Star Herald, one of the umbrella-shrouded faces told him, the voice steady and without highlight, like the rain. Have you heard the news yet? News, demanded Allerton, as he went down the ramp to the apron, and was soon swallowed up by the sea of umbrellas. You're Allerton, aren't you? An aisle was cleared as Allerton drew a slicker from his duffel and pulled it across his shoulders. Flash cameras glared briefly against the dusky sky, making him blink his eyes uncomfortably. Yes, I'm Allerton, but I haven't heard any news. It was a woman's voice this time, sharp and precise as a pencil point. The Eros was gone for three years, Mr. Allerton, on a one-year trip. Sixteen months ago, you were presumed to be lost. You were legally dead a year ago. Here I am, said Allerton foolishly. Here we are. He wished they would all go away, so he could check in at the administration building. He thought that the copter cabs might be grounded by the low ceiling, 
and realized his homecoming, two years tardy, would be delayed still further because it would take him hours to get home to his wife and son. We had some trouble in the Jovian moons, he said unnecessarily, for the rest of the crew must have made that fact known by now. Really, I'm no hero. It had been largely through Allerton's efforts as non-commissioned officer in charge of maintenance and repair that the Eros had been able to blast off from the planet at all. It was a moment he had not considered this hero's welcome. His picture and the story of his exploits might appear on the video newscasts, even before he reached Nancy and the boy. But now that he had stooped low to be included in the protection of the umbrellas, he could see the faces of the reporters. This was no hero's welcome. Allerton waited for what was to come with a growing sense of the ridiculous. He had been almost ready to sign autographs. Hasn't anyone told you your wife has remarried, Mr. Allerton? The rain marched across the umbrellas with incessantly scurrying feet. The space below them was heavy with cigarette smoke, like a small, poorly ventilated room, and with the muted sounds of many voices, keyed low, anxious but objective. Allerton could almost see the scores of pencils, ready to pounce upon the blank pages of the ruled pads and scribble his name across the hemisphere, the world. What are you telling me? demanded Allerton. He had heard. Even now the words were etching themselves in his brain, stirring old memories, conjuring impossible visions. This was the sort of thing you saw on the video casts, then went upstairs with your wife and took her in your arms and thought, Are the people that happens to real? Mrs. Allerton was married again ten months ago. In an interview this morning, she said she was glad you were alive, but loved her husband, her new husband, I mean, that is, the man she married, because she thought you were dead. It was the girl reporter again, the brittle, pencil-point quality gone from her voice. Allerton subdued a wild impulse to say something flippant. Suddenly, it was as if he had indeed died out there in space, and now he was a ghost, coming home to haunt people who only wanted to forget. The reporters expected him to say something, though, tell them that he had spent three years in space hating every minute of it, to find security for his family, tell them he had risked his life to repair the ship, because if he failed, the government insurance would provide for his family. Tell them he was now dead, really dead, as Nancy had thought, and they were wasting their time interviewing a ghost? Have you any plans, Mr. Allerton? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. The rain had slackened. He heard his own heart hammering in his throat and ears. What are your plans for the future, Mr. Allerton? Are you going to contest the marriage legally? Will you see your wife at all? I don't know said Allerton mechanically. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He pushed his way through the crowd of reporters, a tall but stooped figure, averting his eyes from the umbrella ribs. He had been married to Nancy only six months before shipping out, had received word about the birth of their son at the last mail station on Ceres. If she sought the same security he wanted— he could not find it in his heart to condemn her. He was dead. 
He had been waiting to live all his life. But now, he was dead. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, Spacer, on your feet. We're closing. His bleary eyes squinted. It was Johnny this and Johnny that and Johnny Kipling someone. We got nothing against spacers here. Only when we close, we close. I'll make you something to eat if you want, but that's it. No, no, thank you. A bit too much to drink, eh? I'll be okay. I'm sorry if I... Forget it. Here, let me help you to the door. Easy now. He was outside. The duffel balanced on his lean shoulder, the misty drizzle chilling him at once, the wet sidewalk casting his reflection and alternately swallowing and elongating his shadow as he made his way down the street past the spaced lamplights. Sooner or later, he would see her. He had to see her and the child, who was now almost three years old. But what did you do? Walk in the front door and say, Hello, Mrs. Name of New Husband. I'm the man you used to be married to. Perhaps, he thought, you wrote a letter instead. A dear John in reverse. But that way you did not get to see the boy. Certainly you saw none of your old friends. Tough luck, old fellow. Something about more fish in the sea. Patch your back and introduce you to two or three one-tracked-minded bachelor girls as the conquering hero from faraway places. And you did not even venture into the old neighborhood until you were ready for the quick sally, the first visit to Nancy and the boy and the new husband, and departure. Nancy loved her new husband, the girl reporter said. Nancy had loved him. Simple logic. Nancy loved husbands present tense. Security, what he sought. Safe in a circumscribed world, in comfortable middle-class conformity, free and clear of all intrusions except the mortgage and the payments on the new copter, and scraped knees for Junior. He wondered how many bars he had visited, starting with the Spaceport Administration Building. There was a hazy recollection of copter cabs and surface cabs, of smiling, vapid faces and other smiling faces, not vapid, when the video cast appeared on a television screen in one of the bars, and there he was, squinting against the flash camera glare, the rain seeping through the roof of umbrellas and rolling down his long, gaunt face and off the thin, long, drooping nose.
And then someone recognized him, or he recognized himself and drunkenly announced his identity. He wasn't sure which. And someone had bought drinks for everyone celebrating Allerton's return to blessed bachelorhood. And they all had a fine old time, except Allerton, who had soon taken his leave and another cab and another bar. Now the streets were familiar. There was the long, low bulk of the pie-wedge supermarket, big and wide in front and tapering in the rear, with great sweep of thermoglass window staring at him and reflecting him in the lamplight so he could stare at himself. And there was the schoolyard playground, deserted now, the swings wet and the teeter-totters dripping and the slicky sly glistening. What does a man think about when he's out in space and knows he probably won't return, thought Allerton, about slicky slides and a boy hollering in glee with an unknown voice of an unknown face. And there were the apartment buildings, flanking their courtyard with the look of solid strength that only brick can give in this age of glass and plaster. He wondered if Nancy still had their old Republic family copter parked on the roof near the television antenna, and then it suddenly occurred to him that Nancy might not be living here at all. He wouldn't visit her, not yet. It was curiosity and not longing which made him enter the courtyard and the lobby of the second building on the left, past the dark, perfectly cropped rows of California privet, which in another few months would lose their glossy leaves to the coming of winter. The illuminated dial of his wristwatch told him it was 02.30, hardly the time to go calling on a woman and her new husband and a child he had never seen. But there was the name, his name, opposite the apartment number on the call phone. Allerton, with a hyphen after it, and the name Chambers. The widow Allerton lived here with her new husband, the legally declared widow Allerton who probably still received some mail and some callers under the old name, but would one day soon be able to take Allerton and the hyphen out and leave Chambers alone. Nancy Chambers, his wife. He pressed the buzzer and then drew back, startled. He was about to leave the lobby and run out between the rows of privet and keep on running when he heard his wife's voice metallically over the call phone. Yes, who is it? He walked back and stared at the rows of names and buzzers. Harry, he said. There was a sob, a sucking in of breath. I'll come right down. I'm coming up. It was simple. It was as simple as waiting for the buzzer, opening the door, waiting for the elevator, pressing another button, waiting to be carried to the twelfth floor, waiting for the door to slide, walking across the hall to the apartment door waiting for it to open, waiting, waiting, waiting. I hoped you would come, Harry. Really, I wanted to see you. You're looking well. You're looking well, too. She was. She wore a dressing gown of some gossamer material over her flannel pajamas. She'd never liked nightgowns. Nice trip back? Long one. Weather bad? No, there's no weather up there. I can't complain. Did you have anything to eat? Don't bother. I only wanted to say hello. Goodbye, he meant. Harry's asleep now. 
Harry? Your son. Oh. He goes to bed at eight o'clock. He made the automatic adjustment. Twenty hundred hours. Is he well? Couldn't be better. Eats well and everything. Like his old man, huh? You want to come in? But she stood blocking the doorway. No, don't bother. Have you a solidio of him or something? I'll get it. He stood there in the hall, awkwardly waiting. She came back. Here. The other Harry was a dimpled-cheeked boy with blonde hair and a small nose like his mother's. He was wearing a junior spaceman suit and pointed a ray gun straight at you. Thank you. Sure you don't want anything to eat? She wore a pleasant enough expression on her face, the same as she might use for a door-to-door solicitor or a visiting great-aunt from out of town. That's all right. I want to wish you good luck, Nancy. Thank you. Are you sure you don't want... And then the pleasant look melted before tears, not slowly, but all at once, so that this was a different person standing in the doorway, and Harry Allerton wanted either to take her in his arms and comfort her, or flee for the elevator, but nothing in between. Harry, Harry, I I didn't know. I couldn't. We never... That's all right he said, settling for the in-between and abruptly hating himself, not for what was within him, but for what was outside, for the world and its conventions and the things he had wanted to do but never could, and the security he had wanted to earn, but which now had eluded him. I'm sorry I carried on so, said Nancy, the conventional smile returning, the tears Kleenexed away. If there's something little Harry needs... Oh, no, thank you. His father, I mean, my husband, Mr. Chambers, is an engineer over at Grumman, and everything is fine. I guess I'll be going. I'm glad you could come. Does the boy know about me? No, I thought it would be better. Of course, Nancy, you did the right thing. I was hoping you would think so. You couldn't do anything else. Where will you go now? Are you going to make a career of space? I haven't thought about it. There's no hurry. Well, well, I hope you get whatever you want, Harry. He wanted to say it no longer was available. A man doesn't know what he wants until he has it. Well, goodbye, Nancy. Goodbye, Harry. The door shut. He fled with his picture. Come in, Allerton. Nice vacation? Captain Green peered at him through a blue haze of cigar smoke. Not particularly. There are too many people, too many complications. A man can't think straight out there, with all that confusion. I don't know. I said you were for space. You've been around as long as I have. You'll be able to smell them, too. You think I'm kidding? Probably not, sir. There is security and security, Allerton. It can't be explained to a man. He's got to find out for himself. Alone in space, with the ship and a frontier vaster than all the frontiers before it in history, a certain type of man can be secure. He's the man who's lost in a crowd, confused and muddled by convention. He's not a hero. Basically, he's a lonesome man. 
Strangely, the psychologists tell you he's happy then, when he's lonesome. You see what I mean, Allerton? No, sir, not entirely. Forget that formal stuff. Well, you'll learn. The important thing is this. There aren't enough real spacemen to go around. A normal man doesn't give up life for dedication. A spaceman does. You belong to a strange breed, Allerton. Want to talk about your vacation? Absolutely not, Allerton said curtly, then apologized. The thought of it, the thought of stepping off the Eros again and feeling the ground of earth underfoot, wet ground sometimes, or dry and dusty, or covered with a white mantle of snow, always unpredictable, was distasteful. You're one of the breed now, the captain repeated. You may close the Allerton file, said the government psychologist to his secretary. It's finished? We paid his wife a visit yesterday. They're the hardest ones to deal with. The man never knows, but the woman does. How can you convince a woman her husband will be happiest away from her? How can you convince her when you're not even sure yourself? I feel sorry for Allerton. You can't help feeling sorry for him. But psychological tests indicate he'll be happier this way. Besides, besides, the secretary finished for him, it's for the good of the nation. But never mind those psychological tests. Don't have to tell me which came first, the chicken or the egg. Have it your way. But Mrs. Allerton understood. After we worked on her night and day for three years. Nevertheless, she understood. Allerton is a special breed. A spaceman. Well, isn't he? And Mrs. Allerton playing along with us like that, pretending she had remarried. It was the best way. She knew that. We convinced her of that. But forget it, Chief. I'd rather not talk about it. Still, Allerton wasn't a born spaceman, and you know it. There's no such thing. Except for extreme introverts who aren't such good workers anyway. We need spacemen. We need dedicated men who don't want to see their native planet. Either we control space or our enemy does. Then why don't you say it that way? Well, because. Because you're afraid to admit it even to yourself, that's why. Spacemen aren't born, Chief. They are made. They are not particularly heroic or well-adjusted people. They are ordinary men with induced traumas. And they don't want to go near Earth again. And we call them spacemen. It's for the security of the nation, said the government psychologist as he opened a new file. From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy in April 1954, that's Pariah by Milton Lesser. You will find our lost sci-fi audiobooks on many other websites. Audible, the Google Play Store, and audiobooks.com, to name a few, at double or even quadruple the price. You will always find the lowest price at LostSciFi.com. Go to LostSciFi.com and get your sci-fi fix for less. Thanks for listening. We would be honored if you'd go to Apple Podcasts and leave an honest five-star rating and positive review. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, a pioneering spaceman returns home to Earth to discover much has changed, and he could be responsible. Can he escape? What will he do to the kids who now control the Earth? 
That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast.